So Revelation 15, righteous and true are God's ways. Let's look at verse one together. And I saw, Revelation 15, one, another sign. Two signs uh, were recorded for us in Revelation 12. We'll come to those in a second. But this, this other sign, Revelation 15, one, was seen in heaven by John. The sign was great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, the word plague there is plague in Greek. It means a blow or a strike or a stroke. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. So these are the famous bowls. We've heard about the trumpets, the trumpet judgments of God. Now these are the bowls. And in them, in the bowls, the wrath of God is finished. Now from the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. What what does that mean? Paid in full. And from the cross, when Jesus spoke those words, he was talking about the fact that the payment for sin had been made in full. In fact, they would mark bill of ledgers back in the day with a Greek word, a single Greek word called tetelestai. And that word, that single Greek word means paid in full or it is finished. I've mentioned this before, but back in the day, they used to have coupon books when you had a loan for a car. How many of you remember the coupon book? And if you ever got to that last coupon and actually paid off a vehicle, you you would get the pink slip for that vehicle. And it's the idea of you've paid off the debt. It's paid in full from the cross Jesus said, it's paid in full. There's not one more penny that needs to be paid on that debt. The debt is sin. What Jesus accomplished at the cross was to pay the sin debt, to take the wrath of God to appease his holiness. However, if you are not in Christ, is that debt paid for you? Well, you could say the debt is paid, but you have to appropriate it. What does that mean? You have to make it your own. I could tell you I have a $10 million gift for you, but until you reach out your hand and receive the gift, it's not yours. I could say it's on account for you. It's been paid for you, but you must receive the gift. And so if you don't receive the gift of salvation, then what you can expect, sadly, is the terrifying reality of the wrath of God because God is holy and God is just. And so in these bold judgments, the wrath of God, look at the end of verse one, is finished. It reaches its end or its goal. There will be a time when God's wrath is complete, when God's wrath is finished. The book of Romans chapter two, I think it's verse four, gives the idea that the wrath of God is being built up as people sin, wrath is built up. And since God is completely holy and just, For everything that's done wrong, God will recompense it. Think about that just for a second. Every little thing, every big thing, uh, everything that happens that is against uh, the holiness of God or an affront to God or breaking God's law, he will recompense because he is what? A perfect judge. That's why you don't want to face him on that day without being cloaked in the finished work, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the book of Romans indicates that Wrath is being stored up for the day of wrath, almost like being stacked one bill, one debt upon another. People sometimes talk about how they have, you know, stacks of debt. Well, this is the picture of the Bible. That debt is obliterated in Jesus, but you must, again, uh, uh, receive that for yourself. And so here, the wrath of God is finished in these bold judgments. Now, When we came to Revelation 12, uh, we said that we had basically an interlude in the book. Revelation 12, 13, and 14 form a trilogy of thought to explain the conflict of the ages. There's been a conflict, and we saw two other signs. We see a sign in verse uh, 1 of chapter 15. Go back to chapter 12 just for a second. Chapter 12, and you're going to see two signs, same Greek word here. There was a great sign, 12-1, that appeared in heaven. All these signs are in heaven as John sees them. You have a woman. The woman, Bible students, is who? Israel. In verse 3 of chapter 12, another sign appears in heaven. That's a great red, red dragon. And who is that? That's Satan. 
So the interlude of these two signs, and by the way, the, the word sign only appears three times in Revelation. Once in Revelation 15:1, and then the two times I just showed you in Revelation 12. Same Greek word, these three signs. And the, the first two in Revelation 12 explain this conflict of the ages. This woman, Israel, ready to give birth to a male child. And this red, terrible dragon waiting to devour her child. He just wants to get rid, rid of the hope of the world. The conflict has been really, uh, the nation of Israel has taken the brunt of persecution. And the Messiah is going to come. And the Messiah is going to deal with the sin issue. So the dragon wants to destroy the one who gives us hope. But that male child is protected. He's taken up to, into heaven. He's protected by God himself. And so this is the conflict that's been happening. The great sign, the woman, 12.1. The dragon, 12.3. Go back to 15.1. And this other sign in heaven, it's great and marvelous, is the plagues. These bold judgments that will be explained further in chapter 16. In them, the wrath of God is finished. Can you praise God for his justice? Do we have uh, very many worship songs today that we could think about praising God that he is just? I think we have songs about God's holiness, which is wonderful. Holy, holy, holy. Uh, but think about these uh, subjects and look ahead just for a second to Revelation 15 and look at verse 3. They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they said, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord, God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? They sang the song of Moses, 15.3. And they sang, Who will not fear and glorify your name? Flip over to Revelation 16. As the bold judgments begin to be unleashed, here's what it says. And I heard, 16.5, the angel of the water sing, Righteous art thou who art and who wast, and O holy one, because thou did judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and thou hast given them blood to drink. Notice this. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. Go to Revelation 19 for a second. Revelation 19 says these words, verse one. After these things, I heard as it were a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. Well, that's what we love to sing, right? Hallelujah. What's hallelujah mean? Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his what? His judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time, they said, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. How's that for a Sunday morning chorus? Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Hallelujah! Can you imagine a first-time visitor coming into the church? <laughs> hey, I heard about these Christian songs that you guys sing. What are you singing about? Her smoke rises up forever and ever. I heard about the song, I could sing of your love forever, but her smoke goes up forever. What are you talking about? What I'm talking about, if you turn back to Revelation 15, is the Bible. I, what I'm talking about is the word of God. What we just got a little window into is the praise and worship of heaven. And it includes not only God's mercy, and we've seen heaven celebrating God's mercy in Revelation 5. Thou did purchase for God men of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. We saw in Revelation 7 the people waving the palm branches, praising God for the lamb and the blood of the lamb and salvation to our God and to the Lamb. Remember that? We've seen that. But we also see the other, if I can put it this way, aspect of God's nature, which he is also praised for, and that is his justice. I mean, we just saw again in New York City, people mowed down in a terrorist attack. And we're seeing this over and over again. And let me ask you this question. At what 
what place in God's character does vengeance have? Well, you'll see in these places when God is being praised for his wrath, what is being said is this is what they did to your people and you have recompensed your people. God is going to right every single wrong, you guys. He's gonna rule Jesus's in the millennial kingdom with a rod of iron. He is holy. He is an awesome judge. He is a loving God. And in fact, throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see God trying to save people from his own wrath. Don't take the mark of the beast because if you do, you're gonna drink the full cup of the, of the wrath of God in full me measure, mixed, unmixed, man. You're gonna gulp it down, the dregs and all. But you don't have to because Jesus drank that bitter cup for you. God loves you, but God is still an awesome judge, a consuming fire. And these bold judgments are the judgments that are going to flow out from God. In Revelation 16:1, if you look ahead for a second, it says, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go, 16:1, and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into the earth. Revelation 15 is the precursor, setting the table for the wrath of God, which is coming. In 1619, if you look ahead just for a second, it says, the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And so God has been storing up his wrath and he has fixed a day, according to the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, when he will judge the world in righteousness. You can see this in Matthew 25 when Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and he puts the ones on his left and the others on his right. And there are some who say, you know, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and in prison and sick? And Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me or for me. But for those who didn't, he says, you didn't do it for me. And so we can see that in people's works, we're not saved by works, but works certainly complete the testimony of faith. And now God's wrath is going to be poured out on the unbelieving world. Not without warning, not without witness of angels flying in the midheaven with the everlasting gospel, not with thousands and thousands of years of God's mercy and him not giving us what we deserve and People saying, well, where's the promise of his coming ever since the fathers fell asleep? All things remain as they were from the beginning of creation. And Peter says, don't let this escape your notice. That God, with God, one day is as a thousand years, right? And a thousand years is one day. God is not slack about his promises, as some count slackness, but he's patient toward you, not willing that, what? Any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So you have to see that even when you're wrestling with this idea of God's wrath, that he's been extremely patient. If you were God and some pipsqueak was shaking his fist at you for the hundredth time in that day and using your name in vain, how patient would you be? Having all knowledge of every event, every thought, every action, every omission as God does. How patient is God? How patient has he been with you? Hmm, that's something to put into the, uh, the thinking process when you wrestle with the wrath of God. I mean, God has not poured out his wrath yet, but in history, he has shown that he comes to a point when enough is enough, as some of us parents have voiced in history past. Enough is enough. And then we had a flood, a worldwide flood, and then we had Sodom and Gomorrah. And another uh, time is coming when God is going to judge and he is going to make new heavens and a new earth. Before the interlude, if you go back to Revelation 11, we saw these uh, verses. Remember, uh, Re Revelation 11 uh, depicted what many believe is the second coming of Jesus. And then we had 12, 13, and 14, which kind of gave us a look at the conflict of the ages explaining history. In 1115, if you look, it says, 
The seventh angel sounded and there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders, 1116, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to thee. We give thee thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who art and who wast, because thou hast taken thy great power and hast begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and thy wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged. This is seems to be at the culmination of, of history, the consummation, the time to give their reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, and to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Now just note that when you come to the end of chapter 11, you begin chapter 12 with that first great sign. I've told you 12, 13, and 14, kind of pause the tape, if you will, pause the DVD, take us back to the big picture, and then Revelation 15 picks it up again with the third sign. And I saw another sign. Everybody with me? 12, 1, 12, 3, signs. 15, 1, after the interlude, I saw another sign in heaven. And 12, 1 and 12, 3, the sign of the woman in heaven, the sign of the dragon in heaven, the conflict of the ages. In 15, 1, another sign, now the judgment. God's response to the conflict, if you will, is that he is going to judge. He is going to judge for all the persecution that's come against his people. And I believe this would include his people Israel and the church. It's going to be divine payback time. It's going to be time when we wonder, well, what happened to all these people who, you know, even today, if you can stand to look at the reports of the Middle East and hear what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, it is absolutely staggering what is happening to children and to moms and dads in the Middle East. Things that, you know, we don't want to look at. And one day, those things will be recompensed. God will judge. And I saw, 15.2, as it were, a sea of glass. We saw this sea of glass in Revelation 4.6 before the throne of God. So this scene, again, is in heaven right before the throne. I saw, Revelation 15.2, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had come off victorious, that's where we get the word Nike, Nikao, from the beast, and from his image, from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, something like an ancient guitar. Next, we see this sea of glass. So, uh, my wife is uh, one who's responsible for most of the graphics in the church. So she said, well, what's the main image of Revelation 15? So I said, a sea of glass that's mixed with fire. Can you, how can you do it with that image? It's a weird combination of images, isn't it? When you think of a sea of glass, you might think of a glassy uh, sea if you're a water skier, a glassy uh, lake. That's kind of the ideal conditions uh, to, to go ahead and water ski on. If it's glassy and you're a surfer, it's cool as long as the waves are good. So if it's glassy and not choppy, surfers love that as long as the, the, the swell's not one foot. But if it's glassy and it's good waves, then it's like, dude, yeah, going to get some barrels, man. Pastor Michael used to surf back in the day. Can you believe it? Believe it, it did happen. <laughs> Way back in the day. Anyway, we're not going to go there. I can think of many stories, but we won't go there. The sea of glass, look back at Revelation 4 for a second, is before the throne. We get the first scene of heaven in Revelation 4 after the churches are dealt with in 2 and 3. Revelation 4, verse 5 says, From the throne proceed flashes of lightning, 4, 5, sounds and peals of thunder. These are uh, signs of judgment. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now here's this sea. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. 
Notice in uh, chapter 4, verse 10, these 24 elders cast their crowns before the throne. In Revelation 7, 9, just to see what's going on before this throne, flip ahead for a second. You see in Revelation 7, 9, the great multitude. They're from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues. They're standing where? Before the throne and before the Lamb, 7, 9. They're clothed with white, white robes and they have palm branches in their hands. And they're singing salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In verse 11, it says, They fell on their faces and worshiped before the throne. Before the throne, they worship God. In, Revel in uh, verse 15, again, they are before the throne of God, beginning of verse 15. In Revelation 8, 3, you'll see, uh, let's see, the prayers of the saints, the golden altar, which was before the throne. In Revelation 14, 3, you can see the 144,000, they have harps, they're singing a new song, and they're before the throne. There's a lot of stuff going on before the throne of God. And before the throne of God, there's also this sea of glass mixed with fire. Have you ever seen anything like that? A sea mixed with fire. What kind of images are those? If you took a sea and mixed it with the color of fire, which is red, you would get what? A red sea. Now remember, much of the imagery in the book of Revelation is apocalyptic. It's images taken from other parts of the Bible to drive points home about what's going on. One writer says, a sea with fire in it, swirling, tumultuous. The fire swirling in the sea of glass appears to be a depiction of the cosmic disturbance resulting from the wrath of God. The fire is about to fall. Judgment is about to fall. And John mentions here those who come, out, come off victorious. Look at 15.2, uh, from the beast, from his image, from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, and they have harps of God. Now the sea is tumultuous. It's got the red and the fire in it, but there's these other people, and they're on the sea, but they've got guitars, and they're singing, her smoke goes up forever and ever. I don't know if that's the song they sing, but, but there they are. And they, they're victorious. How did they end up victorious? How do you get victory in your life? Jesus is your victory. He is your champion. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. No principality, no power, not height, not depth, not death, not angels, not any other created thing. The devil is not going to steal your salvation away. Were they martyred, though? How did they overcome the beast? Unless you took the mark of the beast, it was impossible to buy, or you were kept from buying or selling. And all the world was worshiping the beast, and they were saying, who is like the beast? And the false prophets calling fire down from heaven, and the world's going after this beast whose mortal wound was healed. But the church and those who have stood strong, these, these victorious ones have overcome him. Who is the overcomer? We overcome the world by our faith, our faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11 says, by faith, by faith, by faith. They did this, they did that. And now we have those who have been victorious. And they, verse three, Revelation 15, they sang a song. And the song that they sing is the song of Moses. Now think about it. All of a sudden the imagery of Revelation 15 is a sea mixed with fire and we said, you put it together and you kind of get a red sea. And then you see these people with some sort of ancient guitars in heaven, harps, and they're singing the song of who? The song of Moses. When was the song of Moses sung? I'll tell you when. It was right after God delivered Israel in the book of Exodus. So let's go over there. Exodus 14. Genesis, Exodus. Go to chapter 14. So we know what was happening. The Israelites were in Egyptian bondage. They were under the taskmasters. They cried out to God for a deliverer. Moses came, and he came with how many plagues? Come on, students. Ten plagues. The bowls are in the bowls, the last 
The wrath of God is finished. They're the plagues of God. Plague is the, the Greek word. When Moses came to Pharaoh, Pharaoh is a picture of Satan who would not let the people of God go and kept them in bondage. And Moses came to the Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, oh no, they won't go. And Moses then brought plague after plague after plague. And finally, the last plague was the death of the firstborn. And Moses instructed the children of Israel on the night of Passover, when God would pass over Egypt, to put blood, the blood of what? The lamb on the doorpost and lentil. And he said, when I see the blood, I will not judge that household. The key to deliverance was the blood of the lamb. And so God led Israel out with a strong hand. The final plague, finally, uh, Pharaoh appeared to be broken and the people went off and they had the gold of the Egyptians and the Egyptians were burying their firstborn. They were digging graves while the children of Israel marched out triumphantly with the treasures of Egypt. Everything looked like it was going peachy until the Lord, Exodus 14, verse 8 the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. The Egyptians chased after them. Remember the woman Israel and the dragon uh, in Revelation 12. They chased them with all the horses, Exodus 14, 9, and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army. And they overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Haharoth, in front of Baal Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, verse 10, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Can you imagine being there, trapped against the sea? Here comes the strongest military in the world. What kind of, what kind of uh, fighters do you have amongst the people of Israel? Nobody who's ever been trained militarily a people that's been in bondage for some 400 years. How can they fight this military machine? What are they gonna do now? They cried out to the Lord. And then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Now they were all happy with the gold. They're all happy that only the firstborn uh, in Egypt died until the Egyptian army was on their heels. How do you do in times of crisis? Do you lose your faith quickly? Does, does your tune change the moment that the odds seem like they're stacked against you? Look, we're all, sometimes our faith gets tested and we don't like what we see in moments of stress and trial. And so, they're crying out, and Moses finds that it's very difficult to be a leader. Oy vey. <laughs> Why did you give me these people, right? It's going to be the story for the next 40 years. But Moses said to the people, don't fear, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. How much had they seen to this point? What had they seen? Ten Plagues. Maybe some of them tried to explain them naturalistically. Have you heard? Oh, the, the Nile became red because there was red mud from a storm and it, it moved into the Nile and then, and then it produced the frogs and the flies. And by the way, the skeptics also claim that where Israel crossed, it was only a couple feet of water. The ancient crossing of the Red Sea there was actually like a land reef and they crossed in two feet of water. It wasn't a miracle. It was a land bridge. Here's the greater miracle. How did the whole Egyptian army drown in two feet of water? How about that expert on the History Channel? Can you imagine that? That's a greater miracle. All these stud Egyptian soldiers in two feet of water. Come on. But they always try to come up with these things. Now, the people of, of Israel, I don't know what their talk was over a cup of iced tea or coffee. Were they some people trying to explain it naturalistically? I don't know. But Moses says, look, 
Don't fear. You're going to see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish, middle of 13, for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. How about Moses? How about one man who's willing to believe God? He says, you're not going to see them again. And the Lord will fight for you while you what? Keep silent. I think that's code for be quiet, stop whining. (laughs) And the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Some of you need to mark that. Go forward in your walk with Christ. Maybe you need to stop whining. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes I need to. And go forward. And as for you, Moses is being addressed by God. Lift up your staff, stretch it out, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I want you to note this, especially as it relates to what we're talking about. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen, 18, Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am what? Honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. I threw out to you the question, can God be honored in his wrath? Can he be praised for his justice? Can he be honored even in judgment? And the angel of God We believe this is Jesus in the Old Testament who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. And so it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. So kind of a a temporary uh, uh, peace, if you will. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. That's part of the miracle. It was completely dry. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And the Egyptians took up the pursuit. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen went in after them in the midst of the sea. And it came about. At the morning watch that the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire. Now remember, in Revelation 15, we saw a sea mixed with what? Fire. Here we see the sea and the fire and a cloud and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. It was obvious that something was happening from a divine hand. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. By the way, in this area, there have been archaeologists who have found chariot wheels under the sea. They cannot move them because they're too brittle with time passing, but they have photographs, underwater photographs of chariot wheels at the bottom of the Red Sea. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So Moses stretched out his hand, 27, over the sea. The sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. And then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea. The waters were like a wall to them on the right, on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, apparently washing up on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Now that is an incredible account. But I want you to see what happens on the heels of this account. Then Moses, 15.1, Exodus, the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. 
This is my God, I will praise him. My father's God, I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. He's the existent one. Pharaoh's chariots and his army is cast into the sea. The choices of his officers drowned in the Red Sea, the sea of judgment, if you will. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Thy right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Keep in mind, this is a song. In the greatness of thine excellence, thou dost overthrow those who rise up against thee. Thou dost send forth thy burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. And at the blast of thy nostrils, the water, waters were piled up. The flowing water stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Thou did blow with thy wind. And the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, you put lead shoes on the Egyptian army. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Thou didst stretch out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Now that's a song. And may I submit to you, that's the song of Moses. Now, there are other songs that Moses penned in the book of Deuteronomy that have to do more with warnings to the children of Israel as they're going to enter the promised land. But this, I believe, is the song. You have the Red Sea. Go over to Revelation 15, and we'll have to move much more quickly now, as you can tell, uh, because we've only gotten through a few verses. But here's the song. And it does go on to say, in God's loving kindness, he led his people and redeemed them. Back in Exodus 15, you can look at more of that later. The song of Moses is sung in Revelation 15, but also the song of the Lamb. Revelation 15, 3, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. I don't know specifically what that song is, although it might go back, back to Revelation 5, but here's what they say. Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. They begin to celebrate in much the same way that Israel celebrated the deliverance from the Egyptian army. When we end up in heaven or whoever these specific individuals are who have been delivered from the mark of the beast, the number of his name, etc. When they get to heaven, they're going to be worshiping God for his great deliverance. We will sing of his love forever, but we also will sing of his justice and his great deliverance, his mighty power that rescued us from sin, judgment, death, the devil, and so on. And they say, who will not fear, 15.4 of Revelation, O Lord, and glorify your name? For thou alone art holy, and all the nations will come and worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. You have revealed your righteousness in your judgment, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And he will be honored in, in that day. And it will be that every knee will bow before the Holy One of Israel. Jeremiah 10, 6 says, There's no one like the Lord, no one like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and great is thy name and might. Who would not fear thee, O King of the nations? That's Jeremiah 10, 6 and 7. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. That's Psalm 19, 9. Who is like you among the gods? Psalm 86, 7. And so we have all of these powerful um, verses about the justice of God. And after these things, I looked, Revelation 15, 5, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. You have an ESV, it says, after this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. Now, I want you to look up at the screen for a second, and let me see if I can get this to go. I think I have it on, guys. Let's see, do I? Can you just go ahead and move it? There you go. All right, so the tabernacle of the testimony is a translation for the tent of witness or the tent of meeting. Now, what Moses was instructed to build in the book of Exodus was a, a tent called a tabernacle. 
And there God would meet with the people of Israel. In this tabernacle, you had one entrance. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, what? Comes to the Father except through me. The first thing that you ran into here was a place for animal sacrifice. You have, you have the, the, I think it's the bronze altar here. And uh, in order to approach God, there has to be a sacrifice. Each of these pieces of furniture, by the way, speak of Jesus Christ, but they also speak of the holiness of God. They combine the ideas of God's holiness and justice. In, in other words, God has to be approached the right way. Uh, very carefully with sacrifices and cleansing and stuff. But this also, each piece of furniture represents Jesus. So there has to be a sacrifice. Then you have the, uh, the place for cleansing. Jesus washes us. He cleanses us from every sin. And as you go in, you have the holy place and then the holy of holies. And, it, and go, go to the next slide so we can show the details. So basically you have the altar of burnt offering here. You're coming through the one entrance. Jesus is the one way. He is the sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God. He cleanses us from all sin. You have a menorah within the holy place. You have to go through a veil here. You have the menorah here, the, the lampstand. Jesus is the light of the world. The table of showbread. Jesus is the bread of God, the bread of life. The altar of incense points to his high priestly ministry. It's right outside the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, or the most holy place. The veil was torn when Jesus died, the veil of his flesh, if you will. And then you go in, and what's here? The Ark of the Covenant. Covenant speaks of relationship, and that on the top of the Ark was something called the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat, sprinkled with the blood, right, that makes us acceptable to God. Within the chest, um, that they, uh, they had here, I think my pointer's gone. They had the Ten Commandments within that chest at some point in their history, but the mercy seat covers it. Now, if you look at what you have here, you have furnishing. See, you have an entrance point, one, two, three, four, five, six, and I would add this veil here. Jesus, uh, the veil of his flesh was torn for us. So you have what? Seven. And... I think the, the fact that this is opened up at this point points us to God's justice and holiness and yet his love for us, that he fulfilled the requirements in approaching God. Now we can approach God boldly through the blood of Jesus, through a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil of his flesh. You can read Hebrews 10, starting in about verse 19. Now, because of Jesus... And because of the, the finished work of Christ, even though God is holy, he's made a way through his son. I'm forgiven. I'm a co-heir um, with Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, we're even going to have a chance to sit on his throne one day. And so this incredible picture of the mercy of God making us acceptable. Why at this point do you think in your Bible we have now this tabernacle shown up in heaven. When Moses made the tabernacle, by the way, in Exodus, uh, about verses 20, chapter 25 through chapter 30, God says, I want you to make it exactly according to the model that I gave you. Uh, and it would appear that Moses was given a picture um, in some way by God as to exactly how he should construct that tabernacle. That tabernacle, according to the writer of Hebrews, is a shadow or a copy of what's in heaven. And so what we see in the tabernacle and later in the temple is a picture of the throne of God. The something like this is in heaven. But now we approach God boldly. We have access into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. In fact, we will see the face of God because of Jesus. Amen. And the seven angels, 15.6 of Revelation. These are likely the same seven angels that we see in chapter eight with the trumpets. Who had the seven plagues or bowls came out of the temple, out of this place we've just described. They were clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their breasts were golden girdles. They, they have golden bands that depict probably that they come from Jesus connected to his holiness and the, uh, the ministry that goes on in heaven. And one of the four living creatures, verse 7, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls 
full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The four living creatures right around the throne then give the, the bowls. They're filled with the wrath of God. The, the uh, bowl here is phialis in Greek. It's a shallow bowl, um, a shallow bowl, and it is wide at the top, and it can be poured out quickly. So the bowls will come quick. It's going to be bam, 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 uh, rapidly. And the temple, that speaks of the, the inner court or the sanctuary, was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Imagine, you know, picture the, the tabernacle of old and the Shekinah glory coming down. And from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now we see this twice as we are winding down. When the cloud covered the tent in Exodus 40, Moses could not go into the tent of meeting, Exodus 40, 35. And when Solomon dedicated the temple, the glory cloud came down on the house and the priest could not go in and minister. Why do you think the smoke fills the tabernacle at this point? And why can nobody go in until this is finished? Here's why I think this is. Because I don't think there's any more intercession that's gonna go on. You're gonna see in Revelation 16 next week, and this is a tough chapter. But when people get the, the bowls poured out on them, they're gonna blaspheme God and they will not repent. And it would seem that there's no more intercession. It's, it's over. Isaiah 6 says, The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out of the temple while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah 6, 4, and 5, And I said, Woe is me, I am ruined, I am unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen in the Lord the King. And so the stage is set. The temple is filled with smoke. The glory of God, verse 8, from his power and no one is able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's as if God is saying, let me alone while I finish up business. Don't come in here right now because the, the wrath has been swirling in the crystal sea and it's going to come out now. And I'm gonna finish my work of judgment and I'm gonna, I'm gonna deal with those who have hurt you and persecuted and shed the blood of my people and I'm going to create new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Look, before you can have restoration, there has to be wrath. You can't have new heavens and a new earth where everything's going to be glorious again unless the stuff that's bad and evil gets swept out. You can't have a new beginning without a flood. And you can't have new heavens and new earth without the wrath of God. And God is going to bring his wrath and then he's going to start over. And we are going to inherit new heavens and a new earth that have been cleansed by indeed the fire of God. That's the future of the people of God. I'm glad I'm standing on the crystal sea with a harp <laughs> instead of on the other side of this equation. And I would just say, this is part of our motivation to preach the gospel because our God is holy and our God is a consuming fire, but our God is so loving that he came into the world to save us. And that is the story of scripture. And the book of Revelation will end with the words, come Lord Jesus, right? Come and make right what's wrong because there's a lot of stuff wrong, but he's gonna make it right. Father, we thank you so much for... Your word, this is again a heavy chapter, but it is true and it's what you've written for our instruction. And we're grateful that a day of justice is coming, but we're also grateful that you put it off. I'm grateful that you put it off until the late 80s <laughs> when I became a Christian. And I'm sure some who are sitting here are grateful that you've put it off until even this year because some are brand new Christians. Some have been, become Christians in the last year or two or five. Some of us have been a little longer, but all of us are grateful, Lord, that you let us be born and, and come to know you. And now we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And it's not yet been fully realized what we shall be. But we know when he appears, we will be like him. For we will see him just as he is. 
And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Keep your head and heart bowed and just whatever business you need to do with the Lord right now, whatever you need to lay down before his feet, whatever pride you may struggle with or whatever besetting sins have gotten the best of you, just lay them down. They're not worth it. He's worth everything. He's so quick to cleanse and forgive and move us forward. And if you're not a Christian, I would just encourage you, just make sure you know him. Be on the right side of this equation. And you you may say, well, pastor, I'm not even sure we're in the last days. It doesn't matter because you don't even know if you have tomorrow. So just come to know him today. Come to know him because of his grace and love, but also come to know him because of his holiness. Cry out to him, Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Thank you that you took the wrath at the cross. Thank you that you defeated the grave. Thank you that death does not have the final word you do. Thank you that you're alive and that you have a plan to sum up the times and you're gonna make all that's wrong right again. And we're gonna be part of something so beautiful, so new. The curse will be no more. Eden will be restored and we will see God's face. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Oh, Lord, there's so many tears that can be shed. Even in this room, as I look around, I I know there's been tears shed in many bottles that you keep a record of. Losses, loved ones that have left way too soon. Inexplicable things that have happened around us and in front of us hurts and wounds and things that cause question marks in our souls. But you are good and in you we trust. And I pray that the reality of who you are and what you've said will cheer us on to the finish line as we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We pray that in Jesus' name.